0: Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle murky pool like Squirtle and Cake Bull Cold blood is with the scheme I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about striving and the constant pressure to achieve, to become something other than who and what we are. I've been thinking about the delicate balance of normalcy. I've been thinking about imagination, reality, and delusion. And I've been thinking about the lines of health and how we know when we've crossed them i been thinking about the American dream, our personal standards, and the effects of constantly moving the goalpost just a little bit further, when that's healthy and when that's detrimental. And I've been thinking about the insanity of second place feeling like a complete failure, about driving ourselves so hard and fast that we flip upside down and crack down the middle under the pressure of pushing a delicate instrument too fast and too far. My guest today is Mary Pallon. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Monopolist* and most recently, The Kevin Show, the incredible story of Olympic sailor Kevin Hall and the psychiatric syndrome that makes him believe he starves in a television show of his life. Welcome, Mary, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So The Kevin Show, Kevin suffers from and struggles with what doctors are beginning to call the Truman Show delusion. Maybe we'll just start with what that is.
1: Sure thing. So the Truman Show delusion is this term that was coined by doctors Joel and Ian Gold, um, their brothers, and Dr. Joel Gold is a psychiatrist um, here in New York, and basically, it's the idea that if you have a manic episode of delusion, that the narrative delusion revolves around this idea of thinking that you're the star of your own TV show. So if I was having an episode right now, I would think you're an actor. Maybe there's a director of some kind kind of compelling me to do certain things, um, you know, your props and so on.
0: And and it's funny because we'll talk about it probably later in the show, but some synchronicities that Kevin had, i mean, he had a ton of them kind of that he was really aware of. And one was with these two doctors who happened to specialize in the syndrome that he was being <laughs> right. affected by. And it's like just it's pinging through throughout the book. Um, what does the director demand of, of Kevin?
1: So Kevin has his first episode in 1989. And at this point he's on, um, a junior at Brown University. He was a very successful student, um, an amazing sailor. He had been um, a world champion uh, in high school, won these huge titles and was on Brown's sailing team. And the way that Kevin described kind of the lead up to this episode to me was that it was the first time he thought in his life he could fail at something. Um, All of a sudden, his math classes that he had kind of breezed through in high school now seemed a lot more challenging. And one of the things that they they did um, with, with Kevin sailing, and this is pretty, was pretty common at the time, is if you were a really top sailor, they would recruit you to join an Olympic training program so you could get some exposure to kind of how elite sailing works. And um, Kevin, the good news is that's obviously an amazing opportunity, but the bad news for Kevin was it kind of pulled him out of his sailing routine at Brown. And there's just a lot of stuff swirling um with him so he thinks that that's the kind of first time he hears the director and he thinks that the director tells him that he should take a bus from providence to boston uh, at first he thinks it's to meet his then girlfriend but the director says you know i i think you need to plan a kind of large live aid style concert so kevin has this episode in boston where he thinks the director is telling him to run around town he um you know kevin told me that he saw patterns and the numbers on top of the taxi cabs. He goes into a bar that he thinks is the, the Cheers bar, um, but it probably wasn't. And, you know, he orders French fries and onion rings and kind of makes these patterns with X's and O's of the fries and onion rings and such. And all of this is because of the director. Um, the episode ends um, with, Kevin thought that Hamlet played a role in that. He had read it in high school like somebody else do, written a paper about it. And, um, you know, as the morning is Rising over Boston, Kevin climbs up a tree and sees a woman crossing through uh, a park and thinks, "Oh, she's Ophelia." And obviously, we're supposed to act out a scene together because Shakespeare is all about the the play within the play. And jumps out of the tree when she walks by and says, "Ophelia." Um, and that's when you know the cops get him and he's institutionalized and diagnosed with um, bipolar disorder, also known as manic depression. So remember, this is 1989. This is obviously a long time before the Truman Show, the movie, came out in 1998, which is fascinating to rewatch because, among other things, that film came out, I think, long before, um, you know, reality TV was as ubiquitous as it is today. So Kevin was really confused, obviously, when all this was happening, but um, also very confused with what this diagnosis was. I mean, nowhere in the DSM, which is the kind of diagnostic Bible that mental health professionals rely on, um, is the idea of the Truman Show disorder. You know, it's not in there, um, but even the definition for kind of the criteria for manic depression or bipolar disorder, um, you know, it doesn't, it it didn't go into detail. Like you might think you're being filmed. You might think you're, um, you know, having a Truman Show like Delusion. Like it was just obviously so long before we, we had those, those terms.
0: Well, and you you bring up throughout the book the kind of crazy contradictions because uh, you, you talk about this quite a bit. Like, actually, in today's era, you might be being filmed, right? You know, right, wherever right. wherever you may be, and people are living their lives on media, on on various forms of media.
1: Absolutely, and you know that was something that kind of came out. You know, when I set out to originally talk to Kevin in twenty fourteen. It feels like it wasn't that long ago, but in so many ways, it's a century. Um, and obviously, you know, in 2014, social media, uh, smartphones, that stuff was really ubiquitous in the U.S. Um, but this idea of, you know, if you look at Instagram, like what is Instagram or Facebook if not own publicist? And I live in New York and I've traveled quite a bit for this book and for various assignments I've done in the last couple of years. And anywhere I go, I'm just blown away by how many people there are who seem to be more preoccupied with like taking the photo of themselves doing the thing than like the actual thing, you know, like people um, selfie deaths. Um, I wrote about this um, in a piece for Wired. They're an actual thing. And what I mean by that is someone who's like trying to take a selfie and somehow injures themselves. Or um, I went to Grand Canyon and Zion and hiked with a bunch of friends and you go to some of these parks and there are these insane cliffs. And so on the one hand, they're picturesque and stunning and you feel like you're one with nature. But on the other hand, there are people who are actually tragically falling or injuring themselves. And I think it's Russia. There's some parts of the world now where they actually have these like cautionary signs telling people, you know, be careful when you're trying to take your selfie. And to me, that raises a lot of questions that, you know, are we more obsessed with documenting our lives that we are with actually living with them. And I'd be lying if I told you that, you know, in the time it took me to report this book, I mean, I now have an app on my phone that tells me how much time I'm spending looking at it Um, because one of my great existential fears is like closing my eyes and seeing like the Gmail screen burned into my face. Um, So I think that, you know, I set out and trying to write a book about mental health and athletes and what is it actually like to be an Olympian and these things that I had seen as a reporter. Um, and Kevin kind of jokingly called himself the village idiot. And towards the end of the process, I realized I had more questions about the village, um, and not so much, you know, the quote unquote village idiot. Like what, what are the things in our culture and our psyche and our technology use that are impacting these things? And where, where do we draw these lines between who's sane and crazy? And, you know, I rewrote the, the, um, end of the book pretty heavily, um, after the election, because I realized that the world kind of seemed upside down from when I started and it would just be remiss to not contextualize, you know, a book you always have to think about it's going to sit on someone's shelf for a year or two or, you know, forever. Right. And hopefully. So I I had to figure out how do you kind of deal with the news of the day and the moment and how much that shifted um, since even 2014, but also something that was going to like last and endure more general and broad about what it to be, I mean, this sounds really, you know, pretentious, but what does it mean to be alive right now if you're, if you're Kevin or if you're.
0: Well, I think it's not pretentious. And I think it's so makes so much sense that this was a perfect topic for a journalist because the what's and why's are so intriguing, Um, not just in the story, but in a cultural context and the way that it has changed since the syndrome started for him, and then his reaction to it as well. It just seems like like the perfect story. How does the director differ from our own internal voices, you know, the, and the ego and, and the other voices that we have in our head? And, and you know, even if, if one's very religious, speaking to God, like, where where is this distinct?
1: That's a really great question. Um, the short answer, I think, is the idea that it, Of control and power, right? So I think with Kevin, there were times when the director was getting in the way of him living his life, right? So if you're having a manic episode, that's going to, a really severe one, you could potentially endanger yourself. Um, You know, there are moments when the director would compel him to stand on the edge of a building or to run around um, somewhere that wasn't safe. You know, he had an episode in Tokyo where he would cross the street without looking both ways, um, driving recklessly. So there's some obvious signs where that kind of voice can be a really negative force. Um, and and so, yes, I think there's like a clear line with this idea that it could cause you or someone you love harm. Um, I think more generally, and this is something that, you know, Kevin and I talked a fair amount about, there is this really interesting piece of kind of global context. And, you know, if Kevin if had this vote in, say, you know, in parts of Africa... It said, "You know, I think I'm hearing a voice of someone who's directing me to do things." There's a case to be made that someone would say, "That's amazing! You're a shaman, and we're going to partner you with someone who also is a shaman who's going to talk about this experience with you. And now you're someday going to have to be a leader um, in your community talking about this." Or, you know, you mentioned religious ideas of, you know, people hearing voices or thinking that God speaks to them, and so that became really like interesting to me, the idea that there are parts of the world that have spent far less on healthcare um, and have better outcomes and treatment rates with things like schizophrenia, which is not what Kevin has, but, you know, obviously one of the outcomes of schizophrenic symptoms is that you, you hear voices. So there is an, you know, Kevin's sister, Christina, well, Kevin becomes this all-star athlete. She kind of goes this other direction becomes this deadhead and, you know, by her own description, a deadhead hippie. I was really interested in these kind of alternative ways of viewing medicine, and really challenges kind of the Western medical view of this. And that's also worth. It's also worth noting that both of Kevin's parents were doctors. So one of the big points of conflict between Kevin and his father Gordon was that Gordon very much saw this as, you know, take your meds. Why is it so hard? Um, and now, ironically, online, you know, um, perhaps ironically. Kevin has spent a lot of time kind of talking to people about what their experiences were. And some people say I had a psychotic break. Other people would have the same, you know, similar experiences that had a spiritual awakening. So I I think that where I kind of, I just come down on it is that I think I was really surprised with how, um, how little, how much stigma there was for people talking about this, um, mental illnesses in general, and just experiences they were having in their mind um, and how isolating that can
0: so Mary, we were, we were talking about um, the idea of voices in your head and whether they are, uh, depending on different cultures, you were saying they they could mean different things. And it made me think of, of what may have been one of the seeds for you to actually write this book was your Aunt Letty, and the fact that she had heard voices. How was that seen in the family?
1: Sure. So my aunt Letty, she um, died before I was born, um, but I knew her sister, my my great aunt Zola. They really had some pretty amazing names. Um, and and she was kind of this person I'd always heard about growing up. And my mother, actually, who'd spent a lot of time with her, became a psychologist. And I think very much as a result of her time with Letty. So she talked about her a lot. Um, so Letty had, by all accounts, a pretty traumatic upbringing and childhood. And um, by the time you know she entered my mother's life. My mother grew up in a small town in Oregon and Letty had moved to Medford, Oregon and had this farm with her husband, Carl. And she had a little boy who was the same age as my mom who dra- drowned really tragically when he was only 10 years old. And, you know, I-, I can't honestly tell you if she described this before, during, but definitely after Roger, her her son had died. She would talk about holding seances in her basement she would, um, you know, talk about when the vibrations were high uh, after the, listening to the radio. She would hear Roger, you know, talking. And there's probably a whole lot more to be said about how she was using the idea of, like, hearing that as, like, a comforting force for something really horrible that she obviously went through. Um, but what amazed me about her story, you know, kind of looking at it through this the prism of this reporting, was that she had a life, you know, that she talked about, you know, hearing all these voices and things and that her friends, her family, I mean, they thought she was a little off, but she, you know, woke up and worked at the farm every day and her husband kind of, you know, rolled with it and she wasn't thrown into an asylum of any kind or totally ostracized. Um, And, and to me, that was, that was interesting. Like that, that today, you know, there's still like, there's still so many people who don't want to talk about, you know, maybe it's depression, maybe it's anxiety. You know, whatever is going on in their minds. And one of the reasons why I think is that they're worried about the, the backlash or what what could happen. And um, and that to me just seems like a tragedy, especially when people are asking or could use help or someone to listen. Um, so so I thought about her a lot in writing this because I thought it was so, and I never had thought about it that way that that she she had this huge, you know, fortunate. Blessing in disguise, sort of, that, that she was able to, she didn't have to choose between hearing her voices and having a life. Um, and, and I, yeah. And that's just amazing to me when you think about
0: it now. And then Kevin takes it to another level. At one point in the book, he says, and I think it's towards the end, he said, You can be a little crazy and have a good real life too. So even at the point where he says, Okay, I I might be crazy, and he's certainly not the village idiot. Like he's one of the most intellectual people. Right. right, Uh, uh, right. You know, not that athletes don't tend to be, but you know, you're like, Okay, this is a super bright guy. He calls his French professor um, when he's in the middle of of one of the episodes or just after. You know, that's who he talks to, and he's in a really, Extreme reader, but the fact that not only can some behavior that may seem crazy not be deemed crazy, but even if you are, that you can have a good life.
1: Absolutely, and in Kevin's case, I mean, I think he even downplays it. Like he made an Olympic team, he's held down a marriage for over a decade, and he has three kids. Like <laughs> you know, and, and but I think there's also like a little kind of dangerous piece to that thinking, though. That one of the reasons I wanted to do this book is that. There are so many depictions of people with mental illness, particularly manic depression or bipolar disorder, where it's kind of romanticized. Um, it's kind of seen as like the tax you have to pay to be brilliant. And I think that's problematic because first of all, it implies that you have to be a total nut job um, to be a creative and I, as a writer, Have faced that all the time, where if I tell people I'm a journalist or a writer, they just assume I've been institutionalized or I'm like this or that, and so that raises a lot of questions too. It's like, well, first of all, I'm not, and second of all, so what if I was, right? Like, why would that, you know, why would that be a problem? Um, But the other thing is that I think the truth about a lot of folks who've been diagnosed with mental illness is that they're they're not Beethoven, they're not Virginia Woolf, they're not Herman Melville, nor should they be expected to be. There are people who are trying to be good colleagues, good spouses, good parents, good friends. And so I think when we kind of create this romance around, you know, mental illness as this, you know, price anyone pays for brilliance, I think that can get problematic too. And, you know, Kevin talked about that a lot. And even when, you know, he has this extraordinary sailing career, the relationship to failure um, was really intense. And I think that that's something I, I think about a lot. You know, I've covered three Olympics and there's something about, Something about it that you don't see on TV, which is that by definition, and it seems obvious, most people do not win, right? Like you you show up and, you know, especially in a sport like track and field where there's the first heat, second heat, third heat. Some people don't even make it on to prime time. So, you know, all of a sudden the the locker room or the Olympic park or wherever is filled with people who feel, God, I worked four years for this thing. I've shamed my country. I've shamed my family you know, my sponsors, if I have them, might be um, really, you know, upset at uh, my performance. And I've always been fascinated by that lifestyle and that choice just because, you know, it's the only job in the world I can think of where the achievement model is that narrow. So Kevin goes to Athens in 2004. He's tried to make it a big team, one, two, three, four times. He finally makes it. And he makes it as a cancer survivor who's privately battling a mental illness, right? Like he goes through this whole odyssey to get there. And he finishes eleventh, which I'm blown away by. Like, I'm not eleventh best in the world at anything, and he's really devastated by his his result. And I, I just think that with sports in particular, it's worth kind of stepping back um, and looking at like what is kind of the mental toll of that for for someone. Yeah, I mean, he's um, by been, the way, it's going to live on Google, you know, for the rest of your life too.
0: He's been working at it since he was a little kid, and and so right. With such conviction and such a good attitude, and he had cancer twice, and not even the same cancer recurring, yeah. but another cancer coming back. Right, right. And yeah,
1: and it's really crazy. It's
0: crazy, and so he struggles with also. You, you were just talking about, you know, the the how we sort of maybe. Not ahead if, if the person is Beethoven and, and they might be a little crazy. Um, he's frustrated by that because he says why being an athlete is somehow less acceptable for him to be, be, be crazy. And you delve into the book in a little bit about the special stresses of being a, a premier athlete. And his father comments on the strange inverse character Kevin had become of his competitive self. And so there really right. seems to be this sort of split at some point, um, between this person who's perfect and striving and accomplishing, and also this split between the internal and the external. One thing that the director does is, is everything is based on, you know, doing it for the audience and for the show, something that's outside right, of right. Kevin.
1: That's a really, really good observation. <laughs> I agree. Did you? Yeah, and I, I think that, like, that was one of the things that I think is so fascinating about his story, too, is that, he was kind of one of the first, I believe he's the first kind of pseudo-public figure who's ever had this. So in his case, you can Google him and find stuff. He was filmed and put on international television. He was told that he was, you know, representing the United States of America and it's the gr- this grand thing. So in his particular case, it's kind of weird to draw those lines between exceptional and normal are really, really hard, I think.
0: And he's living out this intense internal conflict very publicly. And later on, when he gets to the Olympics, they're saying he can't compete because he has to take the testosterone shots to pretty much stay alive.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And that was something. So I've written a lot about doping over the years. And with Kevin, I guess I should explain what happened. So Kevin had testicular cancer not once, but twice. Um, And it's pretty common, um, you know, at the time for for men to take testosterone, so their testosterone levels are at the same of what they would be, not like how you think about it in sports where, you know, guys are getting jacked off this stuff. Um, And, you know, there's no whole protocol that WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, which is kind of the international governing body for doping issues in the Olympics and a lot of elite sports, they now have this thing called a therapeutic use exemption or TUE, which is basically when you're an athlete and you can have a doctor, you know, say, hey, so-and-so has allergies, they need to take this medication and they get it approved. But when Kevin was going through this in the nineties, none of that, I mean, WADA didn't really even exist in its current form. So the the rule that the U.S. Olympic Committee and IOC IOC the National Olympic Committee kind of has testosterone bad, you can't take it. And he goes through public um, conflict with, you know, the the governing bodies uh, over his right to take this. Um, so that's another example of something where, you know, a very personal part of him, particularly testicular cancer, this is before Livestrong would really, you know, say what he want about Lance Armstrong. I do give him and Livestrong credit for kind of changing our views about especially testicular cancer survivorship. Um, and, you know, that it's kind of a young man's disease and that you can rebound and, um, you know, kind of conquer it. That was not the the image um, when Kevin was going through this. So he's talking about a very intimate part of his life and medical treatment very publicly. And, um, you know, his ability to compete and his sport and the thing he loves is very much threatened. Um, So it was really fascinating to read those clips and just think, wow, like, this is just a different era of sports. Um, and ultimately, you know, like I said, he, he does go to Athens and is allowed to compete, but not without a lot of pretty invasive um, blood tests and such. Um, and then drug testing, most people don't know this, but you know, with athletes today, what you do is you do this thing you called your whereabouts. So that means that you have to tell WADA where you're gonna be at any time. And if you're not there, you can get penalized as if you have a positive in some cases. So. You know, think about Kevin's delusion for a minute, where he thinks that someone's watching him all the time and now you have this like drug testing situation where, yeah, they they are like watching and they are and they are all those medical records and there is this kind of large bureaucratic big brothery type thing going on. So that's one of many examples where I think those things were intersecting. Um, and I thought that was really, really interesting. Well,
0: And he has to go get drug tested right while he's preparing to go and do the, the, his like huge race. And, and he has to go across town and, and things aren't like running smoothly. It's you just can't, someone who's already under so much stress and has this delicate balance. Just It was just wild. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. And I'm speaking to Mary Pallon, author of The Kevin Show, An Olympic Athlete's Battle with Mental Illness. And... Um, Mary, I want to talk a little bit about the way that you uh, divided the book up. Kevin Hall is a brother, son, husband, father, Olympic and America's cup sailor. And you write about him in each of those perspectives. Um, what led you to choose that approach?
1: So kind of going back to the idea of athletes or people you see on TV, it was clear that Kevin's um, you know, manic depression was infiltrating all of these aspects of his life and that i i couldn't just write a book about kevin the sailor and i just you know i have kind of a problem with sports memoirs actually i um there's a few that i love that i think are really magnificent but a lot of them are very formulaic they're very i um, kind of schlocky and kind of you know here i am bad thing happened to me i conquered it won the gold medal and off we go and like i said you know at the olympics like a lot of people don't win the gold medal and where's the memoir there and i think that loss and failure and um sports are just way more complicated um i think in real life than kind of the typical glossy uh, glossy sepia toned narrative would lead you to believe so i also kind of wrote this book as kind of a and this sounds you know ridiculous but kind of like an assault on that genre i really thought you know i can't just write a a book about oh guy you know gets the girl um, goes on and wins and in the end it's all fine. I thought there was way more to that story and that there was there was definitely a father-son story here and also, you know, towards the end that becomes Kevin with his own kids, right? Um, there was a dramatic love story Um, But something else I really wanted to do in this book that I see done in fiction a lot, but very seldom, if ever done in nonfiction, was have each chapter switch perspective. And that's not even how I originally proposed the book. It came out of my reporting because what was happening is I was talking to people um, and the facts were lining up. So dates, times, places, um, but people's experiences of them were so different. So which I think is so true for mental illnesses, right, that Kevin would have these episodes and he would describe wow, I felt like I was on LSD. It was electrifying. Um, it was amazing. And then, you know, there were moments when his wife like wouldn't know where he was. So there was this terrifying disconnect between them experiencing, you know, the same day in some cases or, or moment. Um, and that was something I really wanted to to capture. Um, and I also wanted the book to not only be for people who maybe have been diagnosed with something like this, um, but for their loved ones, their friends, their families, the, the people looking on the outside. And I think that a mental illness, we kind of have this misleading view that it's experienced only by one person. But when you think about it, and if you've ever known anybody or uh, who's dealt with something, you know it's not experienced by just one person. So, yeah, I really, you know, took myself out of kind of my daily newspaper routine to kind of step back and think about how the how I wanted to tell this story I could tell right out the bat was going to have to be very different, but it needed to serve the story. I didn't want to do anything that was going to be gimmicky or, you know, me trying to show off being, you know, a different kind of writer or anything. I really thought like, you know, this is a show about a show about a show. Like I have to be kind of meta and creative about how I, how I try to approach this.
0: You quote Kurt Vonnegut in the book and you say, we are what we pretend to be. So we must be careful about what we pretend to be. What do you think Kevin was pretending to be in the illness and in health?
1: That's a great, great question. And I love that quote. I had to, I tried to limit myself to only one or two Vonnegut quotes because there's so many good ones. I just think he called it right. And and his work speaks for itself. Um, I think, and I've talked to Kevin about this, you know, one of the things about the show is when Kevin's in the show, he's always number one. He is the gold medalist. He he can control the world. And when he's out of the show and in kind of quote unquote reality or the plane that most of us kind of live our lives in, you can't control that. And you're not you're not always gonna win, you know, first place. And you might not always be the golden child. And so I think that the the show was kind of a way of coping with reality and a way for him to kind of channel and think about, I mean, it's a fantasy, right? And I think we all do this on some level. And I think that's why, you know, And I, I think for me, for example, like, this is why I love certain TV shows or movies, it's like they transport me to a place that is not my day to day life. I think I was just thinking about A Wrinkle in Time, which I love the book, and I love the movie that just came out. But like, if that is an example, so I think that we have ways in our world of doing that that are very, very healthy and fine. And everybody does them. Um, And so, but I think with Kevin, it's just a different output that, that there, there is something that he was working through here. Um, And I think one of the things I love about, you know, Dr. Joel Gold's work on this is that, you know, in previous generations, if you said you had a delusion, you know, you were kind of cast aside and nobody even wanted to know what your delusion was about. It was, you're crazy, off you go. And one of the things that his, and he does this in his book, Sister's Minds a lot, where he talks about kind of what is the narrative spine of that delusion? What are people going through? And I think that's why, um, and I really try to be careful in the book of not prescribing a treatment plan for everybody, because I think that people's experiences with mental illness are just as complicated as their own personalities are. Um, But I think that's why therapy has been really helpful for a lot of folks, because Uh, you know, a good therapist, I think, can say, well, what, you know, what was that about? What was going on there? Rather than dismiss the delusion altogether, which seems like it's not very productive for anybody. Um, And I think with Kevin, you know, he, there was kind of these black and white, you know, he's in the show, he's not in the show. And we talked about those episodes, but he also, I think, did a really great job of describing kind of the grays. He calls it kind of spinning up. So he and Amanda, and I read about this towards the end of the book, they devised this checklist of signs that he could be spinning up or, you know, plunging down, you know, things like, um, I think people on the street are actors. I'm way, way, way more interested in music than I normally am. Um, I'm staying up late. And um, I think that that's, for me, what was really incredible about that list is that A lot of the things he describes are things that, you know, say I would do on a good day or a bad day. But with someone who's dealing with, you know, a pretty severe bipolar diagnosis, like you just never know, you know, whether you're having a good day or if you're spinning up into something that could be catastrophic. Um, But for him and Amanda, I think creating that list has been really, really helpful. Um, and kind of identifying some of these these patterns.
0: And doesn't the list also break your heart when you read it? Because, you know, he says when when the delusion's coming, he's euphoric and he's free. He likes music, he's chatty, he's passionate, he's social. He's more interested in all aspects of life. And when he's not... He's emotionally tired and detached. And again, you know, what Absolutely. we've been talking about the interview, it makes you question, right? These these narrow lines of, of normalcy and of, um, you know, what's crazy. And clearly when you're out of control and you're harming yourself and you're harming your others, there's a problem. But he has to sacrifice all of these other elements in order to not go there. And I thought it was also really interesting. And and maybe we can talk about this too, because you brought it up at the beginning that um, when at this point his girlfriend is Meg uh, and he says, he assures her it'll be okay that he didn't have to go to the Olympics anymore and win the gold medal. And that that's kind of this upside of this, this insanity and these challenges. And you've got to be like, Oh, okay. Like there's, there's some clue there.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's exactly it. Right. The idea of like, I, I'm the star of the show. This is even bigger than the Olympics, right? Can you imagine? Um, And, and so I think he, on some level understood that really, really early on, but you're right. I mean, I think that list is, there is something about it that's, that's really heartbreaking. Um, And, and, you know, the idea of medication comes up over and over and over in the book, because, um, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, if you were diagnosed, You know, you were given a lot of cases, or at least Kevin was just a big dose of lithium and told like, hey, you know, good luck. Um, And now, you know, I think that our understanding of this stuff is becoming a lot more nuanced, but we still have a ways to go because one of the big complaints that Kevin's had, and I interviewed other people, you know, with manic depression and also some other people with Truman Show Disorder who aren't named in the book um, because I felt like I needed to kind of understand where um where to kind of place kevin and kind of context with other people's experiences and one of the things i heard over and over again is the medication in some cases was so severe that people felt like a zombie they felt like they couldn't you know if they were a painter they weren't able to paint if they were a musician they weren't able not like oh my paintings are bad like i can't do it at all or i'm totally not interested in it and I didn't know much about sailing before I, I started working on this book, but one of the things I think is so fascinating about it is that the sport itself is kind of left and right brained. Like you have to be able to marry the the data and the numbers um, with kind of the feeling of the wind in your gut. And one of the um, Kevin, you know, he he sails at the collegiate level, he sails um, at the Olympic level, and then he goes on to um, he is also sailing at the America's Cup and one of his jobs is as a navigator. So you're, it's as literal as it sounds, right? Like you're trying to figure out, you know, where, where to go with things. And um, to be medicated with his job too much, you know, I think there are periods when he wasn't able to feel the water and wasn't able to do the thing that he really, you know, connected with. So I think that that's something that I'd heard about a little bit over the years, that he was really able to kind of spell that out for me kind of what, what the different taxes are you pay with different paths that you're constantly choosing, you know, what, what to do and who to please and how to do it. And it's very much an imperfect science.
0: Well, it's interesting. I thought about that with the sailing because I thought maybe his unique qualities and his sensitivities allowed him to be such an incredible sailor, right? He was attuned to the ocean and and he, he was be able to adapt to the subtleties and, and feel them and notice them. And then it's almost like then it got to this place of tilt. You know, and that's when there was, you know, and I don't know if you you did this intentionally, but when at the end of the book, when he's in the America's Cup and this boat that they're pushing harder and faster and and like, you know, putting more and more stress on it and it snaps, I'm like, you know, that's Kevin.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yes, I tried to limit how many sailing metaphors I could, I could use in the book, too. Um, But it it, totally And, and I think that that, you know, the the idea in the Truman Show film, there's this amazing scene where, you know, Jim Carrey is on a boat. Um I mean, so many coincidences, which I know you mentioned in the, top of the Interview. Um, and he's out on the water and he's sailing thinking he's gonna hit a wall. And I've talked to Kevin about that scene so many times because he's like, I remember seeing that and thinking like I was on that boat and I think there's gonna be a wall there and I you know, I I, I love I, I think you're totally right that there is this fragility to a lot of it. Um and, and with the water metaphor, right? You get this idea of like you're kind of in control but you're kind of not in control. There's natural elements that are, you know, gonna happen and there's your ability to react to them and sometimes you just can't and um, so yeah, I think you're totally right. And just as humans,
0: right, we're sensitive instruments. And Kevin had all these yeah. abilities and qualities and drive, and yet put into such extreme pressure. And in our culture, you know, he's feeling imposter syndrome, he's feeling shame, um, you know, has set this unrealistically incredibly high bar, uh, for himself and, and from others. And then, all of this shame gets put upon him. He says at the Olympics, he sees his father's face and he sees confusion, disgust and disrespect when he doesn't get first place. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And, yeah. and
0: what does all that yeah. pressure do to a person, especially a person who may be extremely intelligent and sensitive and aware?
1: Absolutely. And I think with, you know, elite sports, it's an extreme example, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say like, oh, there's parts that I identify with. There are a lot of people and like that, I think that, The American relationship to achievement is really, really complicated, whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or, um, you know, a waitress. Or I just think there's this kind of idea of like what success is that's really different in our culture um, than I think we give it credit for. And, you know, with sports, you just have such an extreme example of that.
0: uh, This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Mary Pilon, the author of The Kevin Show, An Olympic Athlete's Battle with Mental Illness. And this is KDPI, 88.5 FM, drop-in radio, listener-supported. And Mary, I want to talk a little bit, like swing back to something we just touched on a little bit, which is uh, Kevin and and his life on meds, because he talks about, um, he says what everyone around him around him seemed not to understand was that with meds he felt like he was living his life inside parentheses and then he says hidden uh-huh. in the evasive name of the condition is the truth there are two sides to the story maybe stopping the medicine is an attempt to cure something far more painful and scary than the fear of losing one's job friends or even sanity um, and and so maybe we can focus a little bit on that like his decision later on to, to stop the medication and you say it's a love story and you're just like oh my gosh like it really is like he has this successful relationship with Amanda and when he says he wants to go off the meds you know she's like okay we'll do it together
1: yeah that happened really recently um yeah so basically that's kind of an ongoing you know one of the things and I'm not a psychiatrist I should emphasize that um nor am I a chemist um but one of the things that I thought was really incredible as I started looking into this was how little we actually know about how these medications work or don't work. So one thing is this idea of like, you know, depression, for example, being caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. I spent a lot of time, and by all means, if your listeners have research that points otherwise, let me know, looking at, you know, JSTOR, Google Scholar, and talking to folks about whether that's true or not. And um, a lot of people know that idea because of the little Zoloft ads. But there isn't really anything to back it up. Um, the, a neuroscientist at Harvard who I quote in a presentation I give about this says that it's an outmoded way of thinking. And, you know, this is something that um, NPR is reported on courts, The Times, other people. So it's not like I'm totally putting out some kind of fringe, crazy idea. So when Kevin looks back at his history with medication, you know, he has a really hard time saying, well, what what was the medication? What was the side effect of the medication? And what was the show? Um, and he made an Olympic team off of his meds, you know, he didn't tell his friends and family at the time. Um, but then he's had, you know, spouts without his medication that have ended in disaster. So it's, you know, I I feel like it's in that boat of like, no pun intended, but like whatever works for someone. I mean, I've interviewed people for this project who said, oh my gosh, medication gave me my life back. Thank God. And then I've talked to people who said, you know, medication destroyed my life and I just need you know, a different exercise or diet regime. So I think that it goes back to this um idea of like what how are we actually serving patients and how are we actually looking at um what helps people. I mean one of the things I love about Oliver Sachs work is that he was so interested in knowing everything about his patient's life. He didn't just say, you know, a patient come have a patient come in and give him something and then move them out the door. He was really interested in a lot of these other factors and how they were impacting people's well being and I think as we're looking at kind of our, our healthcare system and our access to a lot of this, it raises for me a lot of questions about where are we at with this? It just seems like it's so much more complicated than the current system allows for. Um, but if we're not even willing to have that conversation um, and we're not even willing to admit that there's so little that we actually really know, um, how are we gonna be able to help people you know, with treatment and understanding? Um, and I think that not knowing something you know i I love astronomy um and one of the things I love about it, and I was thinking about this with you know Stephen Hawking dying recently, is like there's such a poetry about the infinity of it. people really like that's one of the things that's so exciting about it is that we're we're kind of always just starting we're just finding out you know things about like I grew when I was born, Pluto was a planet, and now it's not, and there's kind of this constant sense of the, the, you know, the world or the universe literally being bigger than we are. And I think with, you know, brains, like a really impassioned neuroscientist would share that view that our brains are these cosmic, infinite, wondrous things. Um, but I think that that's a view that I personally think we should have more of that we're just, you know, at the start of this frontier of understanding how things work and how kind of the magic of it, but also the science of it. And so, I think where the rubber kind of meets the road there is something like say treatment for someone and whether they should be on meds or not, or um, you know, change something in their environmental factors or routine and on and on and on. But I think when you zoom way out, that's a symptom of a larger problem, which is that we're just completely discounting how our brains work and, and where we're at with the research on that. And my mother was a psychologist, so I grew up around a lot of these terms and I felt very, you know, comfortable around them. But I think, that was um, that was something that really surprised me the more I, I dug into it.
0: And it's changed so much in the last decade and probably just in the last five years. I'm just going to say I'm not giving up on Pluto yet in my family. <laughs> just a really little, <laughs> little planet. Yeah, um, I know. It's just know. too sad so to, sad. like, toss Pluto over the cliff um, and, and leave uh. him out there in space all alone. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was the – how cultural influences can inform madness, and that's the the basis of Joel and Ian Gold's book, Suspicious Minds, How Culture Shapes Madness, and um, the, the definitive work on the Truman Show, Delusion. And Kevin was super excited. And again, like the synchronicities. It's weird because you think, yeah, in, in some people wor- world, in like the metaphysical world, like all these synchronicities, they're, they're valid and we seek them out and right. we should pay attention to them and we should guide our life according to them. And yet in Kevin's life, these synchronicities are so real and we almost like are telling him, well, no, you know, you got to discount that. That's like that. Now you're going to crazy land. And so it's it just all these extra, uh, Stress is on him, I think, to define like what is reality and what isn't. Um, one thing he's doing, and he's doing it even more so at the end of the book, is seeking balance. And Sailing for him has served him throughout his life as this place where he felt good. Um, he felt competent. He felt in control. Um, you know, maybe there was some imposter syndrome when he was racing and that sort of thing. But when he's out on the ocean, it's it's a great, safe place to be. Um, and he struggles, I think, with this balance between being and doing. And sometimes he's on the ocean and he's really just being, and, and that's a great place to be. And other times it's all about the doing. It seems like once he's involved in the American America Cup races um, for this for the second time that it really is much more pressure and all about the the doing. Did he talk yeah, about absolutely. that at all? The
1: doing of sailing.
0: Yeah, yeah. That it became more of of that focus.
1: Right, and you know one of the things when he was talking about this that I kind of thought about is like it always changes when it's your job, right? And that and there's kind of this mentality of like getting back on the horse, right? So. As long as you're you know punching in and punching out of your your job and in his case it's failing, then everything's fine um and one of the things that I think Kevin talked a lot about was me was this idea that you know people could be going through the motions on the outside, but that doesn't mean they're happy on the inside um or that that everything's okay and so I think that you know you asked earlier about the internal versus external, and I think that that was a really big insight for me and you know, you should kind of go through the world assuming that you, you can never get in someone's head and you don't know what's going on. So, you know, if anything else, I hope it's a plea for kindness and and empathy. Um, but yeah, I think it's also really easy, especially with sports, you know, to look at someone who's, you know, an astonishing athlete and just think, well, there can't be anything wrong with them or they, they couldn't have any problems. You know, um, I was thinking about this with, um, March Madness and basketball, too. Like, well, if they're, you know, if they're competing at that level, then everything must be okay. And I think that that's never, you know, that that's often not the case. And it's just not our place to be able to make that assumption. Um, But I think it's something subconsciously a lot of us, a lot of us do for sure.
0: You dedicated the book to your dad, and um, Kevin's relationship with his dad runs throughout the book, coming back again and again, and then the the changes that occur in the relationship. What do you make of Kevin's relationship with his dad, who at one point um, questions his encouragement and positive reinforcement as unintentionally harmful in, in establishing this narrow definition of success? Kevin seems to realize that later on.
1: Yeah. So Kevin's dad, who I did interview, you know, he actually passed away towards the end of my, my working on this. Um, And I think anybody who's lost a parent will tell you that, you know, obviously that's a huge, huge moment. Um, And I think with Kevin's dad, you know, it was interesting to kind of see his his parents divorce. And like I said, they're both doctors and they both are really passionate about sailing and they had a lot in common, but his mother really shifted her views about, medication, about mental health, about kind of Kevin and his relationship to all this. And his father didn't. His father really kind of maintained this view that, you know, it's just as simple as taking your meds. And um, one of the phrases he used that I heard from other people that I think is really important was this, th- there was a conflict between Kevin and his father and his father says, you're just not trying. And Kevin Go you know said something, and I'm paraphrasing here to the fact of like I am trying so much harder than you can realize, you know, and I just love that idea that um you know you could accuse someone of not trying, but you don't know, and in Kevin's case, he was working so hard to deal with this um and and you know what's interesting too, is that now Kevin has three kids, um two sons and a daughter and You know, as they're getting older, you know, he and Amanda had to figure out, and this is kind of towards the end of the book, like, how are we going to talk to them about this? How are, what kind of space are we going to have with them as parents and kids? And so they're, you know, I think this is true for most people, they're having kids kind of forces them to reconfront their own relationship with their parents and kind of what their general views on parenting are. And they take a pretty different view and they're really open with their kids and talking about this stuff, but also um, you know, don't really care about them becoming pro athletes. I mean, they obviously want them to be healthy and happy, but they're the the kind of culture that they're growing up in is so different. Um, but I also, you know, the, the idea of dads, um, came to me really early on because I just feel like, and I think fortunately this is changing, but we're not really giving dads a lot of space to have, you know, express themselves emotionally. And I think that there's this alpha male stereotype that has, you know, stayed with us, that's not serving people well. And I look forward to the day when that kind of, you know, I I think that 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 hurts people. Um, I think it hurts partners. I think it hurts kids. I think it obviously hurts dads. Um, So if we're going to have a world with working mothers, which I think we, we should, and obviously, and I'm the daughter of one, um, we also need to have a world with, you know, where dads can talk feelings and show feelings um, a little bit more than they do or a lot more, depending on the depending on the case.
0: And that transition happens in the book, too, because Kevin becomes the, the stay-at-home dad towards the end of the book. And he's grappling with that as right. well. One of the things yeah, that... Oh, go
1: ahead. That's really interesting, too. Well, just because he talks about how, like, when you're a stay-at-home dad, people think, like, you failed at something. You know, there's still this stereotype, like, well, why aren't you working? Um, and in his case, he was like, because I'm, you know, what's wrong with being a stay-at-home dad? Um, and my dad actually, he worked in radio, so he worked nights a lot. So he was around during the day. And that was really unusual in our, our community at the time. And I, I look back on that now so differently that, you know, my dad had this really interesting role in my childhood that was really unconventional. And, but he was around a lot. You know, we spent a lot of time together, and I kind of took that for granted.
0: Throughout the whole book, I think every part of it, the the different characters, and and especially Kevin, are grappling with the truth. You know, that there seems to be um, a question as to what's truth, and, and every character in, in the book does that. It seemed like you, as a journalist um are grappling with that too with the intention of creating a, a work of pure truth is it possible and do you feel like did you come close enough
1: oh gosh i think the country is having a conversation about what the truth is right now um yeah i you know i i did this kind of and this was true my first book you kind of report it as if it's a long piece for the times the journal and you do all the dutiful reporting that you can and you try to talk to as many people who were there as possible and you get medical records and police reports and documents and all these things to corroborate things. So yes, you know, and I did that It's very deeply and noted so people can know where I got things. Um, but it drives you a little, you know, up the wall because you you realize, you know, I knew from the outset, this was going to be a strange project because I was going to be writing about an antagonist who is invisible, the director, right? You can't just call up someone's delusion and say, hey, you know, what was your version of that? So while this was going on, you know, then the election happens about halfway through it. And, you know, I just thought my head was going to spin off because I thought, oh, my gosh, like I've been writing about alternate realities and synchronicities and weird coincidences and male identity and reality TV and truth as a construct and all this stuff. And then this happens in the middle of it. Um, So I think that, you know, I have a I had a professor um, in college who's a documentary filmmaker, and she always used to say it's a version of the truth. Um, and I, I think that, that there's some truth to that, ironically. Um, but I, I wanted to make something that was factually accurate, but also kind of experientially accurate, if that makes sense. Um, because like I said, people's experiences, this is unusual. I mean, I feel like sometimes when I report stories, you're working so hard to confirm, you know, dates and numbers and times and kind of more concrete things. Um, but with this, this was almost the opposite. And that, that lined up really, really easily um, that people's memories were actually kind of in sync on all of that. Um, But that people's experience with with them and that they're, you know, stepping out from it and looking at it from a different perspective. It was almost like, you know, say there's a car wreck and someone standing across the street says one thing and somebody standing on the other side of the street says, no, it looks this way. And, but they're all looking at the same car wreck, right? Um, That's kind of an example that, is given in reporting 101 a lot when you're, you know. And, 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 even, as an, and, and
0: even as an individual, Kevin begins to do that, right? He begins to question his reaction, his own reaction to his mental illness and and what it is and how he should be and wants to react to it. And you mentioned, you know, Kevin can't call up the director and, and ask him, and I don't know if you're familiar with Eleanor Logden's TED Talk, The Voices in My Head, but that's something right, that right. she attempts to do. And at one point that becomes part of her therapy to, to talk to these voices and to kind of go a little deeper into these delusions and to understand what they may be trying to say to try to maybe gain some sort of sense of of what the truth is around around that.
1: Yeah, and I love that scene at the end of um A Beautiful Mind where you know John Nash obviously is going to spoil the movie if people haven't seen it but where John Nash is walking um, with, you know, the the Paul Benton character and they're just behind him. And it's kind of this idea of like, okay, I know you guys are there, but can you hang back for a little bit? You know, I got some stuff to do. Um, so I think there is kind of that as a, as a possible ending. Um, but like I said, I think denying this you know, isn't going to get anybody anywhere.
0: Yeah. Denial is not denial <laughs> for anyone. <No>. Anytime. <laughs> it's not, not constructive. We all can agree on that. And so, um, I've been speaking with Mary Pallon. Her book is The Kevin Show, An Olympic Athlete's Battle with Mental Illness. And um, Kevin Hall also has a book, Black Sails, White Rabbits. Do I have it right? The Boat Cracking and a Sailor Dying. Yeah, and it's excellent. Yeah. And um, is your book out, and where can people get it, and where can they get more information on, on you and
1: your other work? Sure. The book is available. Um, you can get it on Amazon, IndieBound, Powell, Barnes & Noble. Um, and my website is Mary MaryPilon, dot com.
0: And are you already on to the next project? Do you have any teasers we can throw
1: out? Oh, gosh, no. I, I, um, I'm touring this and then my lips are zipped on other stuff, but um, I'm having a great time. <laughs> okay. Well, the book's <laughs> so wonderful and,
0: and just every page. It's really uh, enlightening and also exciting and, yeah, everything wrapped into one.
1: Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. It
0: was great talking to you. Bye-bye.
1: All right. Thank you. Take care.